Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 298. It's titled, The Stock Market is Not the Economy, But It Sure Depends on It. The top five companies in the S&P 500 index, this is a measure of U.S. large company stocks, are Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Alphabet, which is the parent company to Google. Those five stocks comprise 20.4% of the index, the highest level in 30 years. Their performance through April for those five companies is they gained 10%. This in the face of the worst global pandemic since 1918. The other 495 stocks within the S&P 500 are down 13% year-to-date through April. This is data according to Goldman Sachs. Eric Levitz in the New York Magazine wrote, and it's a little bit satirical, a growing number of Wall Street investors and analysts have made peace with the dissidence between the market's fortunes and their own. In their view, capitalists haven't lost touch with reality. Equity values simply no longer depend on the functioning of society. The market isn't the economy. Capitalists don't need it to be safe for you to leave your house or possible for 30 million unemployed Americans to find jobs in order to make healthy profits. The next industrial revolution will be live-streamed. Come on in, the S&P 500s. Fine. Sarah Ponsek wrote in Bloomberg, The market isn't the economy, though it's at least a reflection of it, and a bet on what will thrive in the future. Unsurprisingly, amid a crisis bent on keeping everyone at home, bets are coalescing around companies that ease the burden of being locked indoors. She quoted Jack Genasiowicz, a portfolio strategist at Natixis Investment Managers. They oversee a trillion dollars in assets. He said the eye-opener is when you look at the ones you're worried about, he's talking about stocks within the S&P 500, airlines, leisure companies, it's not a big chunk of the S&P 500. It's the old adage where the market isn't the economy. That really hits an important piece here. A lot of the stuff we're worried about It's just not a big chunk of the S&P 500. So maybe we did overreact by selling off 35%. Finally, Matt Phillips in the New York Times wrote a piece titled, Repeat After Me, The Markets Are Not the Economy. He wrote, The stock market looks increasingly divorced from economic reality. The United States is on the brink of the worst economic collapse since the Hoover administration. Corporate profits have crumbled. More than a million Americans have contracted the coronavirus, and hundreds are dying each day. There is no turnaround in sight, yet stocks keep climbing. Even as 20.5 million people lost their jobs in April, the S&P 500 stock index logged its best month in 33 years. The top five companies in the S&P 500 employ about 1.2 million workers worldwide. The U.S. has 133 million employed workers. Last month, it was 156 million, over 20 million jobs lost. Those five companies' employment makes up only 0.9% of jobs. 
and across the entire S&P 500, those companies only employ about 17% of U.S. workers. What other evidence do we have that the stock market is not the economy? We're going to explore that in this episode. Here's some data from Ned Davis Research. When U.S. real GDP, gross domestic product, it's the measure of output, the dollar value of goods and services produced, when it has grown at a pace greater than 6.1% year over year, the S&P 500 has lost 4.6%. That's going back to 1960. When GDP has been below 0.8%, that would include contractions year over year, the S&P 500 index has gained 12.1%. The stock market is better when the economy is doing poorly, according to that data set. Here's another piece of data. This goes back to 1948, again from Ned Davis Research, comparing year-to-year changes in nominal gross domestic product for the U.S. compared to S&P 500 earnings. Over that time frame, the U.S. nominal GDP has averaged 6.4% annual growth. The S&P 500 has averaged 14.6% earnings growth. There is 0% correlation statistically, between those two data points. In other words, whatever GDP does, it has no influence to what the earnings are doing in that given year. No correlations, not negatively, in that earnings are soaring when GDP is falling, but there's really no relationship. In 2012, Jay Ritter, he's an academic at the University of Florida, released a paper titled, Is Economic Growth Good for Investors? He went back to 1900, so 110 years of data, 19 countries, and he compared real per capita or per person growth in GDP and the real stock returns. He found over that 110-year period that the correlation was negative. Countries with lower per capita GDP had higher Average real geometric stock returns. For example, the highest return over that period was Australia, 7.2% annualized. Its per capita GDP growth was 1.68%. The lowest return was Italy. Its real return for stocks was 1.7% annualized. And its GDP growth was higher than Australia, 2.15%. The highest GDP per capita was Japan at 2.69%, but its real stock return was only 3.6% annualized, while the lowest GDP per capita was South Africa, 1.13%, but its real annualized stock return was 7.2%. What do we do with this apparent disconnect between the stock market and the economy? Do we just load up on the S&P 500 index? Come on in, the S&P 500's fine as Eric Levitt says? Better yet, why not buy QQQ? It's an ETF. The Invesco QQQ Trust. It tracks the NASDAQ 100, which is the largest 100 non-financial stocks that trade on the NASDAQ exchange. Those five companies I've mentioned, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Alphabet, comprise over 45% 
of the NASDAQ 100 index. Had you invested in that ETF, performance was incredible, up 6.9% year-to-date, not even down for the year, 17% annualized return over the past five years, 18.1% annualized return over the past decade, and 14% annualized return over the past 15 years. Why not just invest in that? Done. One decision. It reminds me of back in 2000. The chair of the investment committee for a university client of mine was a very skilled stock selector. He focused on technology companies and was a little frustrated that we were not recommending a greater allocation into those stocks. Then the crash hit. From March 2000 to September 2002, the NASDAQ 100 fell 80%. This gentleman's portfolio also suffered. Now, he's, he's come out fine because, again, these things have rebounded. Back in episode 226 on asset bubbles, I shared some research by research affiliates where they looked at the 10 largest market cap tech stocks in the U.S., those 10 comprised 25% of the S&P 500 index. They were Microsoft, Cisco, Intel, IBM, AOL, Oracle, Dell, Sun, Qualcomm, and HP. Over the next 18 years, not one of those companies, one of those stocks, beat the market, outperformed the S&P 500. Five returned about 3.2% annualized, lagging the market. Two failed outright, and five produced negative returns. Price matters. What you pay for a company, a stock, is important because if you pay more for it, the stock has to do even better to justify that high valuation. The average trailing price-to-earnings ratio for these top five companies within the S&P 500 is 45.3 compared to the overall S&P 500 of 24.8. Now, I don't have the P.E. excluding those five. Those five make up more than 20%, so they're bringing up that S&P 500 trailing P.E. On a forward-looking basis, those five stocks have an average P.E. of 32.3 versus 22.8 for the S&P 500. These top five companies will only outperform the S&P 500 if they do better than what investors expect. Earnings have to come in higher than expectations. Otherwise, the stocks will disappoint and they'll underperform. I go through a detailed example of this in my book, Chapter 3 on What is the Upside? Using Amazon, one of those five stocks, to mathematically show why stocks need to do better than expectations when it comes to earnings in order to outperform the market. So the stock market is not the economy. But what do we mean by the economy? Well, again, it's GDP. Output, the dollar value of output of goods and services, and that is over $20 trillion in the U.S. on a nominal basis. Now, GDP is calculated or estimated not by measuring how much was actually produced, but they can estimate it based on how much households and businesses spent or how much income households and businesses received. We can look at what makes up the economy by sector. Which sector produces the most goods and services? It's the government sector. 
This is data from Capital Economics. Government comprises 12.3% of the U.S. economy. That would be state, local, federal government. 14.9% of jobs. U.S. government as a percent of GDP is the highest of anywhere in the world. Brazil is second at 9.8%. Another large sector in the U.S. economy is real estate. It's 13.4% of GDP, but only 1.5% of jobs. Combined, finance and real estate makes up 18.9% of U.S. GDP. Business services is a big element of GDP and is about 14% of jobs. Business services includes legal services, accounting, management consulting services. Manufacturing is 11% of GDP and 8.4% of jobs. Now we can compare that to Taiwan, South Korea, and China, where manufacturing is 30% of GDP. Healthcare in the U.S. is 7.6% of GDP, about 13.6% of jobs. And information, IT and info services, 5.2% of GDP, 1.9% of jobs. So healthcare and information combined in the U.S. is just about 13% of GDP, but they make up 42% of the S&P 500. The market is not the economy. A big component of the economy is government and private businesses producing goods and services, producing jobs. Only 17% of jobs in the U.S. are for people who work for the S&P 500. Now, even in my personal life, and probably yours, how big a role does those five companies, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook, play in your personal economy? Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at NetSuite. Dot com slash David. That's netsuite.com slash David, netsuite.com slash David. I looked at what I spent over the past year, both our household as well as my business. And only one and a half percent of my expenditures went to those five companies. Amazon was the largest, and the biggest share of that was for Amazon Web Services, where I host premium content for Money for the Rest of Us Plus. I actually spent nothing on Facebook last year. The year prior, I did, 
I did some Facebook ads because Facebook, in order to actually share your post with your audience, you have to pay them. Some members will see it, but if you want to boost it, you have to pay them. I spent about $1,000 on Google. The biggest part was an ad campaign. Google contacted me about running a campaign for my book, and they assigned me a campaign rep. When they called up, it felt like a boiler room. You hear all this talking in the background. It was really high-pressure sales that convinced me to do this ad. I think I had to do a minimum $3,000 spend, but I could cancel any time, and we worked with the campaign strategist. One of the recommendations was to run ads for the keyword money for the rest of us so that the Google ad would show up at the top of the search results if somebody searched for money for the rest of us. Now, my website is the number one search result. So then I have to pay Google so I can get a search result better than my number one ranking for my own URL name. That's the kind of advice I was getting. We canceled the campaign after two weeks. 70% of Google's ad revenue comes from ads. How much of that is coming from companies feeling like they have to buy ads so that their company shows up if somebody searches their company name or small businesses that get convinced to run ad campaigns that, at least in my case, didn't work. It's not easy to run a successful Google ad campaigns because you're competing against all your competitors. It's a race to the bottom. Facebook, 98.5% of the revenue comes from ads. Who's buying these ads? It's not the market. It's companies, businesses that function in the economy. So only 1.5% of my spending went to the top five companies. 16% went to charity. 12% went to shopping. We had to furnish a new house. So a lot of it went to, to furnishings, a sleep number bed, which was a sponsor to this podcast. They're not in the market. They're a private company. A lot of that furnishing was used. We spent 11% on travel, 10% on food, 6% on home services, painters, people to install furnaces, to fix things that break, 6% on auto. We don't have car payments, so gas, repairs, and insurance. 6% on health care. Most of it going to a health co-op, a health share, and 5% to utilities. So if we look at my personal GDP and the contribution to the market, not real high, is it? The economy is not the market. But when I pay those people that helped out at our house, that money did flow. And some of that went back to Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple. I mean, I don't have a beef against those companies, but I certainly don't want to stake my net worth on their economic fortunes, on whether their stock will continue to outperform the overall market, because history suggests I will be disappointed. Back to that study by Jay Ritter. If you look at the 19 countries, all the countries had positive per capita GDP and all had positive stock returns. When he said there's a negative correlation, 
there wasn't a tight connection between the countries that had the highest per capita GDP growth rate. They didn't have the highest stock returns. He looked at what the countries that had the highest returns, what did they have in common? He pointed out the top seven, Australia, South Africa, the U.S., Sweden, New Zealand, Canada, and the United Kingdom, all and here's his quote, had the good fortune to not have major wars fought on their territories in the last century, a misfortune that befell most of the continental European countries. War is not great for the stock market if it's destroying your country's manufacturing capacity, destroying businesses and households. He pointed out that those high-return countries predominantly speak English, with an English common law tradition and long histories of democratic government. In other words, institutions that people trusted. A number of them had economies tied to the natural resources sector like Australia. What he did find, though, that there was a very tight connection. The countries that had real dividends per share growth had the highest performance, which is good because the stock market long-term and I've taught this in numerous episodes and in my book, is driven by dividends, the income, the cash flow, and how that cash flow or dividends are growing. And then what are investors willing to pay for that growing cash flow stream now versus later? But the countries that did the worst on a performance standpoint didn't have dividends per share growth. It contracted on a real basis. That's important. That's what drives the stock market long-term. It's the income in the income growth. And where do these companies get income from? Who buys their products? Households and private businesses. And when you have a major global recession like we're experiencing now, where's that money coming from to tide over those that are unemployed? Coming from the federal government. $2.9 trillion the federal government is spending to help households and businesses. The Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank, is expanding their balance sheet from $4 trillion to over $10 trillion with programs to lend to businesses and to buy assets in the market, including exchange-traded funds for non-investment-grade companies. Debt, junk bonds issued by companies that also have stock trading in the S&P 500. Do you think those stocks did better when they found out the central bank would buy their bonds because there was a liquidity crisis and the bonds across the board were selling off? The U.S. government will run a budget deficit to GDP of over 18% over the next year. That's money that is flowing into the economy. That is money that households and businesses will spend. That will boost corporate profits of S&P 500 companies. Do you think that the stock market is doing well because the U.S. government is running a huge budget deficit? The market is not the economy, but the market is very, very dependent on what is happening in the economy. Mohammed Alarian, he's the chief economic advisor of Allianz, spoke on CNBC yesterday. And he talked about 
this win-win for investors. Investors in the S&P 500 win if the pandemic is contained and there isn't a second wave and the economy bounces back quickly, a V-shaped recovery. And if that doesn't happen, investors win because the Federal Reserve has backstopped the market. It's true. The stock market and GDP growth are not correlated from year to year. But the stock market depends on household and business income, money flowing in from the government, from the private sector, not only buying their products, but buying their stock, providing a bid for their stock as individuals invest in their defined contribution plan. The top 12 bear markets in U.S. stock market history going back to 1916, 10 of them occurred during a recession. The average loss was over 46%. We haven't experienced that level of losses yet. We probably would have if the Federal Reserve and the federal government hadn't acted so quickly. Thankfully, they did. But we still don't know how this pandemic will end. We know so little about this disease. We don't know how the economy will do, what the shape of the recovery will be. I just completed the May investment conditions report for Money for the Rest of Us Plus. Went through all their leading economic indicators. They are all getting worse. Corporate profits are getting worse. Investors have no insight, clear insight, as to how this will play out. They have guesses, they have hope, and they have the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world. Hopefully, the rebound will continue, but we won't know. And in the meantime, I am not going to tie my financial future to a handful of big cap technology stocks. Too risky for me. My personal economy is diversified. And my investment portfolio is diversified with both public and private investments. Finally, we need to recognize that the S&P 500 is not the market. It's a market. The stock market's global. The U.S. right now makes up about 57%. Japan is 7%. China is about 7%. United Kingdom is about 4 So there are many other countries that make up the market. And there are many other asset classes besides stocks that make up the market, many of which we've discussed on this podcast. So be diversified to protect yourself and recognize that the market is not the economy, but that the market is dependent on the economy and including a big portion of the economy, which is the government and its central bank. That's episode 298. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free weekly insider's guide. It's the email with information and links about that week's episode, as well as an essay on money investing in the economy. Some of the best writing I do each week, just to your inbox. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.